happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 206 for January the 27th, 2021. My name is Dr. Wes Fryer, and I am joined by Dr. Jason Neifer, who just teleported perhaps from the University of Montana campus to the Apple campus. Um, is that right, Jason? Or that- where- where were you before? That, that's absolutely correct. I was on the UM campus, and now I magically transformed into the uh, Apple campus in uh, Palo Alto, California. Um, but how are you tonight, sir? I am well, and I am um, enjoying home ownership. Let's just say that. So. <laughs> when when people tell you you need to have a large sack of money when you have an older house, you know they're not kidding. But no, anyway. they're not. It's not as bad as it could be. And it's always fun when you're like, well, it could always be worse, you know. So, but no, it's good. And um, we're uh, we're trucking along. We we did find out that our vaccines are probably not going to be here for the 12th. We just had a all call school meeting on Zoom last night. And, um, you know, it's just a reflection of larger societal things happening uh, in terms of the country and the distribution of, of vaccines and things yeah. like that, I'm afraid. So, but uh, yeah, we're we're uh, safe and we're doing well, and we're almost to February if we can believe that. So, yep, absolutely. And uh, I'm in similar condition with vaccines. Um, I'm a one B in Montana, um, and I qualify four times over for the medical uh, list that would get me on one B. But uh, in Missoula County, which has one of the higher vaccination rates in the state. Um, we're only getting 1,500 vaccine doses a week, and there's supposedly 40,000 people in Missoula County that are 1B. So uh, right now we're ser- serving people 70, uh, uh, 70 years or older or in persons of color. So um, that, I imagine, will be a uh, at several thousand people uh, here in the county, and then I assume I'll be up right after that. And um, I will say one of the things that, that some advice I've been giving to folks that have, have uh, thrown their hands a little bit about this is that, you know, there had to be an order. Um, I don't necessarily agree with with some of the decisions politicians have made about who goes in what order. But the matter of fact is, is we have X number of vaccines. We're going to be able to do X number of people and we'll slowly and surely get through everyone. In the meantime, you know, my master advice is follow public health advice and stay safe, mask up, keep social distance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy school here in Oklahoma city. And I have the pleasure pretty much every Wednesday night, but just a few exceptions of gathering here with Dr. Neifer, um, you know, lowering my own credibility with the Hardy Boys books, perhaps. That <laughs> on the me. But um, we are here to talk some ed tech. And Dr. Neifer, I understand you, you're still uh, running the same, the same distance learning gig out of uh, the, um, the, the university. Is, is that correct? That uh, employment is, is constant and, and income is, is steady. Yes, that, that's exactly correct. I feel very, very lucky that, um, you know, even though I've been largely at home, I've been out at least less than 10 times in the last uh, 10 months. Uh, and part of what my great advantage is, is I have a job where I can work at home. I am the assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, where we're serving uh, about 3,000 students uh, in the state of Montana this year with supplemental distance learning. Um, but we've got a lot of great topics to talk about tonight. If this is your first time with EdTech Situation Room, first, welcome to our podcast. Wes and I like to get together once a week and talk tech. And particularly, we like to take technology headlines and kind of shoot them through the edu prism to see if we can find some insights 
maybe for teachers, tech directors, administrators, and those involved in education. And tonight we have actually less categories than usual, and I think we'll get into some in-depth discussions. It's going to get a little nerdy tonight, I think, but then again, what week does it not get a little nerdy? We've got some connectivity talk to go through. We have some Google and Apple news, a little bit of tech correction, which is our term for maybe reconsidering some broad technology movements, and then we'll end our week with our so-called geeks of the week. Dr. Fryer, I think it's your turn on the big board. Where should we start tonight? Well, I'm going to start under tech correction tonight with a podcast I listened to yesterday that um, didn't completely blow my mind, but it just really stretched it. So uh, this is a, a, I'm really actually not a fan of the Dummies series of books, actually, right? Because I don't think it's, it's great from a, you know, learning standpoint to kind of insult people's personality. So I'm not a huge fan of the title of this podcast, but it is titled You Are Not So Smart. Uh, this is episode 198 from January 25th, and it's titled Reflection and Insurrection. And the interview here is absolutely riveting if you are interested in what's been happening with respect to social media specifically the January 6th riot at the Capitol, um, the ways in which um, researchers have been taking a look at the polarization within society, the roles that social media has played within that, and the the potential for media literacy education and, like, what do we do? How do we educate folks and, and make this better? And there's going to be a multifaceted approach to that. The thing, and there's, so there's a researcher from the University of Regina up in, I think Saskatchewan, and I think that may be where Dean Shiresky has done some, some teaching, but he has been researching the psychology of, of, um, you know, conspiracy theory and what a lot of disinformation and misinformation will do over time. And it's, it's so, it's totally fascinating. They say in the podcast, you know, after World War II, one of the biggest questions that's, that social psychologists looked at is, I mean, how did Hitler happen? You know, how did this take place? How did Germany allow this to happen? And we're having a similar kind of uh, thing perhaps happening now with respect to social media and disinformation. Um, what, uh, they, what, what, one of the things that he says in the interview is that we, we, we can't, this is because my kids, I'm doing a, a conspiracy theory unit right now, and we're about to start actually watching the videos that the kids have created as their culminating, you know, pro- unit projects. <laughs> you can't just say trust your trusted sources. What the, the big discriminator between folks who are falling for QAnon and these conspiracy theories and maybe in that small group that got cold smaller and smaller, but, you know, actually bought plane tickets or, or you know, traveled to, to D.C. to participate in the Capitol riot was their unwillingness to really uh, check uh, their own their own beliefs and question them, sort of like the way the scientist always needs to do with new hypotheses, right? Be open to new information, be open to question yourself. Uh, they have a term that I need. I'm going to listen to this again. This is a this is one of the best podcasts I've heard in a long time. Um, but what we need people to be willing to do is to deal with cognitive dissonance and to be willing, uh, to, um, to rethink their own assumptions and to not just blindly follow elites. <laughs> and so, you know, as I am teaching fifth and sixth grade, I mean, anyway, it's just got me, I mean, you can't tell kids not to trust their parents, not to trust their teachers. But ultimately, at somewhere down the line, we're going to need to encourage a level of critical thinking 
that is it's not the norm for for us in terms of our psychology we we don't like cognitive dissonance we like to have simplicity you know our brains are kind of lazy and so anyway this is a fantastic podcast and i think just goes right in line with what we've talked about a lot with the tech correction the one other article that I'll mention because it's very closely tied to it is Peter Singer for Defense One wrote on January 24th an excellent piece called Three Steps to Fight Online Dis- Disinformation and Extremism. And I have not yet finished, but I have read a good chunk of his book called Like War, which I highly commend to you. He's written a number of books. He's a co-author of Like War. And he has both short, medium, and long-term solutions that we need to do. He sees January 6th at the Capitol riot as an absolute watershed in the ways in which the social media companies finally stepped up to take responsibility um, and, you know, deplatform uh, the president of the United States and, and thousands of other people. Um, there is a great and just sort of mind boggling con- quantity of data right now that is in the in, in the public because of we talked about it last week the horrible security that parlor had and you know we're talking gps coordinates and uh, you know all kinds of identifying information there are people that are are members of the of police forces of military of different kinds of um you know uh, security protection uh, organizations there's a lot of work on that but uh, to your credit, and this is my position too, you know, his long-term prognosis is that we've got to help educate users and we have to focus on what he calls digital literacy. I would call it media literacy, but it's determining credibility, determining trust, and and not being duped by groups and you know organizations and individuals that are spreading disinformation. So that was my blow my head open, you know, podcast that I don't listen to or have too many of those. So I would definitely add that to your listen list if uh, you haven't taken it in yet. And I know you've got a number of, of tech correction, section 230 articles as well that I, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about those because getting our heads around, like, what do we think about these potential regulatory and legal cha- changes um, is a, is a challenge for multiple reasons, but well, start with it, there are a, a thousand headlines in the last uh, two weeks regarding um, Biden's potential regulation of tech, and I want to be really clear that while I think that we need to start taking some kinds of actions, remember there was a lot of energy around regulating tech well before the Biden administration. And Congress struggled with that pretty mightily in part because, well, I mean, it appeared that many Sanders didn't really understand social media at all, right? They were lacking any sort of foundation or meaningful way of of, of even wrapping their brains around social media. Uh, the other thing that was also extremely obvious was that a number of Sanders also didn't understand that advertising is what made social media really work, right? It was a, a fight for advertising dollars. So Section 230, which is is what holds platforms um, uh, 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 harmless for what users put on those platforms. That's something that Trump certainly wanted uh, uh, regulated and thought that, uh, well, from his standpoint, it was that he wanted platforms to be more responsible for when they they um, uh, were censoring uh, individuals on those platforms. And 230 is flexible. I don't know how flexible it is in that direction. There's some argument, I think, in legal circles, whether it is or not. But the bottom line is there is a lot of interest to relook at, at, at Section 230 
security as a means of, of maybe making platforms more responsible. So interestingly enough, uh, there, there was a, a Verge article talking about how uh, President Biden's commerce nominee definitely backs Section 230 changes. Um, to be honest, I'd be surprised if, if anyone prominent that, that was nominated for that post didn't at least acknowledge that they wanted to look at, at, uh, some sort of changes in Section 230. But there's a caveat here that another article in today's Verge, I think, makes an interesting, uh, um, I guess, counterpoint to to these changes. And uh, the Verge reports that there are a lot of social justice groups that say that throwing out Section 230 actually minimizes the voices of those that already lack access to mainstream media resources to argue uh, for things like social justice and change. And this goes back to, we've talked about this, you know, countless times, um, uh, in past episodes of the podcast. This is the balance that makes this so difficult, right? It's the balance that makes us so, uh, genuinely bumfuzzled, right? We are absolutely, uh, 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 challenged by the notion of how do we regulate this without getting rid of the reason why the internet was such a powerful democratizing force in the first place. I don't think you'll find any bigger advocates that, than, than, um, uh, uh, Dr. Fryer or myself for the democratizing power of the internet, the ability to give voice to anyone who has access to the internet, a free and open internet gives a voice to the powerless. The free and open internet gives a voice to people who are otherwise unable to access mainstream media. It's an incredibly powerful resource, but that comes with a double edged sword, which is if you give everyone a voice, then suddenly everyone has a voice and not all voices are for unity and not all voices are for democracy and not all voices are, are going to uh, advocate for the public good. And I think you're starting to see that even if there's interest in regulation, that there's no clear pathway for this. And in fact, we may be grandly challenged by finding a regulation that doesn't minimize the reason why the internet was such a powerful force in the first place. And you are muted, sir. Look at that. I've been <clears throat> doing that a little bit. It's always fun to, you know, say something very provocative and know that you looked so silly when your mouth was moving and no one was hearing anything. Thank you. Um, if we were talking about a true marketplace of ideas, uh, that would be a little bit different. But as Peter Singer and his co-author in Like War talk and, and a number of other um, analysts and, and especially you know, researchers that are focusing specifically on the power of disinformation, propaganda, uh, the weaponization of social of social media. You know, that is what continues to happen. And um, we we are really yeah, what was your, your your new term? Peggy, put it in the chat. Bumfuzzled. As a society, we are rather bumfuzzled about how it is we're going to address this. I think one of the, the reasons why January 6th, and I'll agree with Singer in that article, uh, was a turning point is, you know, people have been pointing to politicians and the double standards that the free pass that, that many were given um, as an example of, of what the platforms need to be required to do, you know. But that article specifically, the Singer piece, has some really good clarifications about private companies versus the government. Um, you know, that we've never had a complete 100% free speech, uh, reality, you know, in the United States. 
um, you are not free to engage in dangerous speech or speech that that incites violence or child pornography or you know there's there are things that as a society we've said no you you can't you can't do that at all and so those are important educational pieces but i think the challenge and this is where i you know i agree with you section 230 and just changing that i mean it sort of has been portrayed like 230 makes it this wild west where there are no no limits but i mean the platforms themselves are limiting <laughs> what's happening i mean that that happened on january 6th um the thing is we don't have enough people i don't know we don't have Zuckerberg would have us believe that AI will save us, and maybe other people think that as well. But artificial intelligence and algorithms are not at the point where they can address this to a satisfactory level. And human beings, even though there's a lot of folks engaged in this, and, and you know, quite frankly, I think the smartest minds in, in computer science are, I mean, certainly economically motivated to be in Silicon Valley working for these companies and trying to figure this out because these are some of the biggest questions that these companies are facing right now. And I just don't think we've come up with uh, compelling solutions. However, to segue to another article that's under the tech correction as well, uh, this is NBC News on January 25th. Twitter launches Birdwatch, and they say a forum to combat disinformation. I don't know that it is a forum. I think what would be more appropriate is a crowdsourced volunteer, um, you know, pollute information pollution identification <laughs> program, because what you can do, and I'll include these links in our show notes as well, is anyone on Twitter can volunteer to become a part of Birdwatch. Um, it is basically kind of a separate kind of Twitter. And what it reminds me of, the link to this is twitter.com slash I slash Birdwatch. Um, we had that a number of years ago when they were rolling out some differences to Twitter and that little I, I don't know, it was like it eventually went away and we went back to, to not having that in the links. But it is a way that anyone who would like to can add notes and comments about why something should be considered disinformation. And Twitter is hoping that the velocity of you know crowdsourcing, basically, like if you look at Wikipedia, whenever uh, an event happens, this is a really good thing, I think, to talk to students about and to visit with them about, because I still think Wikipedia has a very bad name in a lot of educational circles, and I think a lot of teachers, as well as adults and maybe students too, underappreciate the very unique and and valuable, uh, you know, services and information source that Wikipedia is. Uh, very quickly when an event will happen, a page will start to be built and things have to get negotiated in terms of what's going to be said and, and what's going to be put forward. And that is a crowdsourced effort that is happening um, not only among Wikipedians who are de you know dedicated to the platform and the idea of providing universal access to the sum of human knowledge, which is what Wikipedia is about. There's also players that have very political agendas and, you know, there are trolls and people that just want to you know, unfortunately, I think blow things up and make people mad. And there's all kinds of folks that are that are in the mix here. But the point is, uh, it, it works. I mean, Wikipedia has some very, you know, good strategies and techniques for for crowdsourcing. And I think Twitter is hopeful that similarly, they'll be able to harness some of the energy and intelligence of the crowd and be able to use that in ways that can address information, disinformation. But these are really, really big problems that I've shared. And I'm generally not a pessimist. I tend to be a real idealistic optimist. 
Um, and I am long-term for sure, but <laughs> uh, these are not situations that have a quick fix. Having a different, you know, chief executive appointing a new head of the FCC, like that's not going to help, you know, Facebook and Twitter uh, get these, get these things solved. So um, I, I want to read in the, in the ensuing weeks some more about section 230. I agree with you that, you know, the political, the temperature of our politics around all of this is, um, you know, let's make legislative change. But the thing is, I don't know that legislative change is going to, to solve these problems. And, you know, we've talked about the fears of regulation, you know, breaking the internet. And so it's, I heard a, one of, maybe he was the, he was the writer or he was certainly a co-writer of the original section 230. And I should know his name, but I'm pretty sure he's a senator. Anyway, he's still serving in the U.S. Congress. And he had a very articulate explanation of why, you know, just getting rid of that or, or trying to brand that as, as the culprit is not appropriate. And we have to be careful because obviously a lot went wrong on January 6th and thing, a lot of things were going on and continue to go on that brought us to this place. And, and we would love to just, you know, identify the villain and let's stomp them out and let's change the law and woohoo, we'll celebrate and it'll all be fine. And this is far, far more complicated than that. But Peter Singer has one of the best, I think, breakdowns of sort of, you know, short term, medium term, long term. Um, and some of it is just like helping people understand private companies have the right to do what they want in terms of limiting your speech. And, and they can Amazon can decide not to allow profanity in their reviews. They can. They're a private company. And, you know, when you walk into the mall, not like we're doing that a lot now, but when you when you walk into a place of business, they reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. And that's because they're a private company and they could do that based upon your speech or based upon the clothing you're wearing or a host of other kinds of factors. So there's some re-education or not re-education, but there's some, there's some education that society needs about how all of this free speech stuff works. But section 230 and whether it's repealed or it's amended, it's not going to solve the, the, the new, changes in, in information warfare that we're seeing. And Singer in that article talks about ISIS as well and how the things that were done globally against ISIS or ISIL, as it was known, certainly reduced their capability to organize and recruit, uh, but it, it moved them into more covert, uh, perhaps encrypted, you know, uh, parts of the web or, or you know, uh, places. But there's a lot of people that have have bought into um, that a lot of the things that have been said in the past four years and a lot of things that led up to the the capital riots on on the sixth and it's it's um inspiring i I'm personally inspired to hear some of the things that are being done. I listened to a podcast today by our our newly nominated Surgeon General who served as a Surgeon General under President Obama. And there's a lot of really positive things that are happening on multiple fronts within government. But unless you have the answer tonight, Dr. Neifer, which I'm not <laughs> you won't, I don't think that we're going to, you know, have, have some fingers snap and a, a wand waved by some kind of federal agency or even Congress. And it's all it's all back to 1955. 
Yep, I wish I don't have a, 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 a I'm sorry, I wish I do have a wand to wave, but I guess one of the way the wands we can wave is just to remember that this is an education problem as much as anything else. Yeah. And Peggy's commenting that Birdwatch, you know, is maybe makes her a little nervous. It is a it is a separate part of Twitter. It's not a like immediate kind of thing. It it basically just allows Twitter users to add commentary to tweets and information and then the Twitter administrators are going to be able to see that and they are going to see how it goes and decide how they might roll it out. But it's an expansion of what we've seen over the last couple of months where, you know, certain tweets were tagged things. That was a decision made by Twitter under the current Birdwatch that it will continue to be something managed directly by Twitter. You know, users, unlike Wikipedia, where unless the page is locked or something, we can just directly edit the page. You know, no one in Birdwatch is going to be able to just directly, you know, start tagging tweets and, and other users are going to see that. You, you can see it inside Birdwatch if you're on a separate part of Twitter, but it's not going to be out there for everybody to see. And it is an experiment and it's iteration. And by the way, that's how a lot of learning happens is when we iterate and we're going to try some things and we're going to see how it works. But I had listened to the Kara Swisher interview with the parlor CEO the week before the Capitol riot. And, you know, they had a jury and a system to, to vet things and whatever. And one of the biggest problems is there's just so much dog on content, you know, being shared and published that, if you think you can just, you know, submit everything to a jury of your peers, that's, that can't work in, in this world of, you know, exabytes of data. By the way, I just signed, tried to sign up for that new Twitter piece. And uh, one of the things it's making me do is turn on two-factor authentication. So I find that to be interesting. So I'm going to sign up and I will give updates uh, uh, as things play out. Good. I think you have to, yeah, yeah, because you have to have a phone number, and that's this is an interesting thing from a privacy and surveillance point as well, right? Because some people have tried to say, hey, if we had retinal scans or fingerprints or you know some kind of of, of biometric identification, then perhaps we could you know shut down so many robots and and false accounts and and all of that. And there's reasons why you know dissidents and others don't want to be known as, hey, I'm, you know, I'm inside the nation of Iran or, um, or, or the Ukraine or, or Russia or whatever and, and posting this kind of stuff. So, um, but for this particular project, the Birdwatch project, yes, they want to know who you are, have your phone number and be able to contact you. And there's going to be a level of, uh, required you know, ID verification. So absolutely. Okay, well, we have some kind of nerdier stuff. Well, I could, we've already been pretty nerdy. We have some other varieties of nerdy stuff that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, let's talk about a little bit of connectivity. Um, two articles that really stood out to me this week. The first one was Ars Technica reported on January 22nd that CenturyLink and Frontier missed a FCC broadband deadline uh, uh, in dozens of states where they had received hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies from the U.S. government to connect uh, uh, particularly rural states. And by the way, the, one of the reasons why I'm sensitive to this is Montana was one of the states that they missed. Um, and they said they need at least another year to meet the targets, despite the fact that, that the money was given a long time ago. And I'll just tell you that having to deal with this actively in my life, because my in-laws are having to use a cell connection that wasn't meant to be used as a primary internet, 
uh, uh, connection as their primary internet connection. It is quite frustrating, um, to be in rural Montana. And, uh, and I, I can't even imagine what it's like in very, well, I can't imagine. I've been in very rural Montana and get one bar on cell and find out that a mile out of town, there is no wired internet to utilize. But I'm hoping that there is some activity on the part of the new Biden administration, particularly the FCC. Uh, there was a, um, a rural broadband advocate that has been named the acting chair of the FCC. She's one of the Democrats. Um, on that uh, uh, commission, uh, she said that rural broadband was a big focus for her. And as we reported in past weeks, uh, that the perception that's getting better was only because they were kind of juicing the stats a little bit, right? By saying that 10 megabits down, one megabit up, which I do not think qualifies as a robust uh, broadband connection was good enough. So something to keep in mind. But I want to juxtapose that to a story uh, that appeared in Recode today, talking about how one of the reasons why older Americans are going to struggle to get the COVID vaccine is because signing up for COVID vaccine requires both access to a computer and internet access. Now, computers are a little less of a concern because there is fairly wide adoption of technology amongst the 65 and older set, if in anything, but by cell phones. But in a lot of cases, you need a robust internet connection. You're doing things like pressing F5, refreshing your page to get to sign up for one of these vaccines. I myself have not qualified for a vaccine yet because I'm lower 1B, but I have been on some of the pages that are scheduling and it does take a little bit of tech savvy to get through and sometimes to get back to busy sites that sometimes go down or are not available. And I have always been concerned about the notion of taking any critical social service and putting it online only because I just don't think the United States is uh, providing enough opportunities for broadband for everyone to not create huge disparities. But I think this is a very practical example of the difficulties that exist uh, in, in trying to utilize new technologies to do something like roll out a life-saving uh, vaccine because it requires Internet access. Any thoughts, Dr. Freyer? Uh, you know, we've talked about how, as as teachers and educators, it's valuable for us to consider the silver lining of, of COVID and emergency remote learning and remote learning, what are things that we've learned, we've done, that even when the pandemic is, is over and done with, finished, we're going to want to carry forward. I kind of think there's an analogy here that the gaps that have been you know shown and, and highlighted, which we knew were there before. But they've been brought into some either in sharper relief. And yes, with, you know, the, the, the vaccine registration, my wife is in a, it's called a PEO group, but there's a lot of older ladies that are in this group. And there's, you know, they've, they've traveled all over the state to get the vaccine and they've reached out to their networks. And there's different people who are really helping, you know, seniors and others, um, be able to identify sites and, and get these appointments. But it's very digitally, intensive. Um, that My point is that, that the need to work on the digital divide and to make that, you know, a drum that we beat and something that is, is really supported. Because, um, I mean, when, when we were wiring schools, quote unquote, getting T1 lines, you know, at the beginning to, to every school, that was a, a big push. And, and E-rate was something that I think had quite a bit of attention. And maybe people are just thinking now, yeah, schools are wired now and we have what we need. But 
folks go visit different schools uh and and you know if if you can get a device on the network i mean it it varies widely um and then the the community and and the access and do people even have choices and how fast is that i mean that standard that the fcc had that a jet pie you know re-verified just prior to his departure was five years old you know the idea that internet upload and download requirements in in homes hasn't changed in the last five years is absolutely absurd so hopefully we'll have some more enlightened or less i don't know whatever you want to say hopefully we'll have better leadership at the fcc and the um the organizations that are involved in in e-rate and that kind of regulation because the digital divide's a big deal. Oklahoma's a rural state. Um, I mean, we have a lot of rural. I mean, just talk to somebody from like a, a country like Japan or, or even Europe who has a chance to drive <laughs> to the West, you know, go visit Yellowstone Park. They're all, I've, I've heard multiple stories of just how amazed they are and how big our country is and how many wide open, how, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles of wide open, you know, swaths of, of land. And it's just so different from a lot of parts of the world, wiring Japan and bringing high speed internet and connectivity and high speed rail and all that. It's a completely different ball game, you know, in a very small nation like that or Singapore, you know, compared to what we have here in the United States. And it will not happen because I, I worked for uh, an internet service provider for two years. And that was one of the things that I took away. The return on investment is not there to bring robust, fast, you know, high-speed internet connections to rural America. Um, it's there in the urban cities, but it is going to take the same kind of emphasis that we had in, in terms of electrifying the nation and bringing dial tone to the nation. And that meant co-ops, regulation, government support. In fact, I think I want to write a, a blog post. It's time to stop hating the government. You know, we really, there are really good things that government does and good things that regulation and do and so hopefully our state educational technology and, and just not even ed tech organizations organizations supporting teachers and supporting students and families will will really take that banner and if they're not already championing it you know champion champion it this year and in the future moving forward because you know all of us just need a fiber optic connection right how are we going to get that <laughs> yeah absolutely it's expensive so Okay, well, we've got, uh, let's see, two kind of uh, more techie-techie ones. We have Google and we have Apple. Where should we start first, Dr. Fryer? Oh, let's go Google. We'll just go in order. Okay, well, um, I, this is actually kind of Apple. I'll wait for the Apple-related Google ones until maybe the end here. As Whatever. A Whatever. Um, first, great news from Chrome Unboxed today that Chromebooks will be getting a QR scanner uh, in Chrome OS 89. And I will tell you, I've always been really mixed bag on, on QR codes uh, because they were really hot for a while, but I felt like they're always kind of... Uh, I don't know. They're, they they always felt kind of ham-handed to me and not as 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 sleek as they should have been. It helps a lot now that there's a QR scanner that's built directly into uh, the the photo app on both uh, iOS and Android. So they're better now, I think. So I think it's a better way to utilize information. 
but I've always laughed pretty hard at uh, QR codes in classrooms that have laptops because it is awkward at best to utilize a laptop there. And you can download apps that do it for you. But really great news, they're going to get that natively in a Chromebook. And so if you've got one-to-one Chromebooks in your classroom and you want to utilize QR codes as a means of directing students or having them moving around your room or doing learning stations or whatever your heart desire is there, that's great news uh, for the Chrome OS. And also related to a new thing in Chrome, OS. Uh, Chrome in general also applies to Chromebooks is now rolling out hiding notifications when you are screen sharing. And I will tell you, I've only been caught by that once. I learned my lesson um, where I was in a meeting and I was having a back channel uh, text conversation with a colleague that was also on the call. I don't think anyone saw it, but I was using Google Voice and it popped up a notification that I had got a text from the person that I was texting back and forth with. You just do that once and then you figure out how to turn off your notifications for future Zoom calls. But that is an outstanding uh, evolution um, in uh, the Chrome OS platform. Um, I added a a Chrome or or Google one I'll, I'll do really quick. And this is not recent news. Maybe everyone else knows this, but the Google News app website, which I've actually never heard of before, uh, had an article in October uh, 2020 about new default video playback options in Google Slides. And I actually shared a presentation, I guess it was yesterday. Uh, we have Chapel and Chapel Talks. And uh, anyway, I wanted to play some video. It was lovely because I could take the YouTube video, not only mute it right within Google Slides, but cause it to autoplay. And that's what I used to do all the time in Keynote on my Mac. Um, and, and of course, it's still beneficial if you're let's say in a rural area or an area with, you know, sketchy broadband, or you're not going to be able to have access, you know, when you were offline with keynote, that was great because you didn't have to worry about what the internet was going to do or not do, but connectivity, we take a little bit more, more for granted. And I've certainly moved all of my presentations onto Google slides. And so it's just nice to see that additional function of being able to, you know, still click to play, but you can auto play and you can mute and just, it's nice, but it, it's been there for a while. It's, it's didn't just, you know, appear in 2021. Excellent. And then other Chrome related news that I think is uh, interesting. Uh, that's the Apple stuff. I want to wait. I want to wait. Oh, uh, just funny thing. Uh, last Thursday night, Google Classroom went out and it was in the evening time. Right. And so I will tell you one of the things that is really challenging in distance learning world is you don't want sites to go down. And even if sites go down, you want to be really careful how you announce that. And the lesson I learned, this was seven or eight years ago, was we uh, we had a, 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 a tool that was utilized in a small subset of our classes that um, uh, uh, would stop working for about an hour and a half. And it's before, you know, we had learned some lessons about how things worked. And so we sent out a note being transparent. The site is down. We don't know when it's coming back up again. And it's, you know, and it's impacting the following classes. And, um, and it went back up an hour and a half later. Well, it's, it's okay. Thank you for your patience. We're so sorry. And wouldn't you know it? Uh, it was about middle of October 
January 10th comes along, we're nearing the end of the semester and all sorts of kiddos that weren't in the class that was impacted was using that as an excuse for not turning their assignments in. And remember, kids do dumb stuff sometimes because they're adolescents, right? Like that's the adolescent gig is you got to draw some boundaries. You got to draw some side rails for those kiddos. And so we learned our lesson, you know, to make sure that we message sites that go down correctly, but more importantly, that you want to make sure your stuff doesn't go down. But I'm almost certain that that led to all sorts of excuse making on kids as parts. Bless you kids for being kids, right? Because that's that's what adolescents do. But I laughed pretty hard when I saw that, that on a Thursday night even, right? It wasn't even like 10 o'clock in the morning. On a Thursday night, where you can imagine deadlines were pending for lots of kiddos, the, Google's, the Google Classroom went down. Well, this is a great uh, th you know, thing to know how to do to check the service status of Google apps. And so I'll put this link into our chat and I'll try to add it to our uh, show notes as well. This is the Google um, status dashboard for what they call uh, Google workspace. And it's very important to notice that Google classroom is not in the top portion of this uh, screen. It is at the bottom where it is very conspicuously headline products not covered by the Google workspace service level agreement. Now, I don't know. That would be interesting to, to say how, how does that affect schools? Because I would, I would, I would have thought, you know, classroom is going to be considered an essential part of Google apps, but you can still see the little orange dot that is on January 1st, 2021. And in addition to seeing this, we should all know that you can click on the dot. So even if you click on it here, you can see that at 7.20 p.m., I'm going to guess this was Eastern time on the 21st, uh, it says that we're investigating it. They had an update at 7.48 and an update at 9. And then by 9.25 p.m., it said it had been resolved and it's back to green. So as a technology director, I certainly learned um, that... It, it is important to know how to check the status of your cloud services. Um, I think and thought it was wonderful, um, you know, having <coughs> most of our essential, um, you know, web services and, and, and databases. And th those things were, were located off site. Um, and from a security standpoint and a data backup and all those kind of things, you know, it, it, it wasn't our responsibility to keep Google mail going. You know, we had to keep the internet connection up, but, that that responsibility lie with Google and then we you know would pay for other kinds of services. So just a little teachable moment there as well to make sure. Oh, okay. So Peggy says it may be showing time in your own time zone. Yeah, of course. Google's gonna be smart that way. So that's cool. Uh since I'm logged in, it knows it knows me. So um good thing to know how to do and even a good thing to to be able to share with some others that um you know might might want to check that kind of thing out. Because I I think I had tweeted out, you know, hey, Google Classroom is down and then, you know, then it was back up. But we don't see hiccups in Google services very often. So it is a pretty significant thing when it happens. Okay, so we're going to do a couple articles now that are kind of transitions from Google News to Apple News. And first, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that both Wes and I are now are sporting uh, M1 Macs. Uh, we're kind of both in testing phases. Uh, he's got a MacBook Air. I've got a MacBook Pro. Um, I will say that, and I've had this for, for what, three three weeks now, Wes, about three hours now. And, um, you know, the, the thing I will tell you right now is this is not ready for me to be a production machine yet. And the thing that is lacking for me is Google uh, Drive Stream. 
Um, and that is something that, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but that's critical for me because I live in Google world and I don't think Google world and Apple world conflict. In fact, I think they go very well together as a matter of fact, but I professionally, and this is a, this is, this is, this is my work laptop now, my primary work computer, uh, that needs to work for me before I jump in. And there's alternatives, but I can just wait because I, I have access to, to other equipment platforms. But, um, there is a lot of interesting things going on right now in M1 Apple world. So first and foremost, uh, a piece of, of, uh, kind of transitionary information. There's a really great article on Chrome Unboxed on January 24th talking about how the M1 Mac is giving the Chrome Unboxed folks who are geek supreme on Chrome OS. They are, uh, other than maybe Kevin Toefel, I don't know, bigger advocates for the Chrome operating system other than the folks at Chrome Unboxed. But they did buy an M1 Mac uh, I'm sorry, Mac Mini that they're now doing all of their video editing on. They regularly release 4K content, so they're they're obviously happy with the platform. But there is a lot of thought that 2021 could be a great year for ARM-based processors in Chrome OS because of the extraordinary achievement of the Mac um, Mac M1 or the Apple M1 chip. And there is a lot of rumors about Google designing its own silicon, not like not unlike Apple. There is already a MediaTek Chromebook focused chip that's supposedly going to bring a lot of performance gains and battery life gains for the Chrome operating system, but we'll have to see. But something that's very exciting for me is that Google Drive, or I'm sorry, Google's announced that Google Drive File Stream, uh, which I believe is now called Google Drive Desktop, they're going to change the name of that sometime soon. <laughs> but yeah, I thought the same thing. Um, Back up in sync, Drive File Stream, something else, just yeah. <laughs> And it's more syllables every time, too, which is also not to their benefit. But they will bring M1 Mac support in April. Now, I will say I feel like that's that's a little long, right? Because the M1 Mac has been available to developers since uh, early 2020, actually. That was announced, I think, uh, in spring 2020. So I'm a little surprised to find out that it's going to be waiting so long. But that critical piece, if you are super Google, uh, is definitely headed in, in that direction. And uh, Wes and I were talking about before the show, uh, he's only been on his, his uh, uh, MacBook Air M1 for a couple of hours now, but you haven't found anything yet that's just not working for you right no i mean um the the one app that triggered rosetta which will do your right. back compatibility was the skitch app which yep. i i used it all the time uh so yeah really the only things that i've downloaded um of course chrome was first uh one password itch um i work in my google stuff all in the in the chrome browser um i teach teachers who would like to and have more of a desire to be in the what matt calls the finder the file manager um it can be easier when you're organizing a lot of files i think to to use that and to have different panes you know where you're dragging things back and forth but i have generally tried to have as few things as possible installed in the background you know that run and but it also just kind of depends on on how you roll so it uh it can be challenging to do file management strictly in the browser so i think it's a, a very important function that Google has. And one of the things that discriminated actually drive file stream from the consumer facing backup and sync, I think was what, what maybe it's still called, uh, was this idea that 
it was not going to download all of your data because if you had a smaller right. drive, it downloads indexes of your files. If you would like to persistently keep something offline, you can, but the default behavior of the program is to allow you to browse in, in what Mac calls or Apple calls a finder based environment. It's a file manager and you are able to see the titles of files, the kinds of files they are and the folder structure. And you can move things around, but until you actually double click to open it, it does not download from the cloud. And we had quite a bit of, uh, of, of issues, frankly speaking, around drive file stream in the transition time and some weird quirkiness and some, some, some pretty frustrating stuff. So it is challenging technology, but, but, but Google, I think, has done a wonderful job getting that to work. And I'm confident that they'll be able to do that on the, the M chip architecture as well. So unfortunately, that means Jason may have to wait till April. <laughs> yeah, April ish. Although I, and I will say, I mean, I, I, I have not fully, I've been probably on and off this Mac anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour a day for the past two and a half weeks. And I still have, I just checked 9% battery left. So that is unbelievable, right? That the battery life for there. And I will say, uh, most everything works for me. Couple of, of examples of things that don't. Snagit isn't working for me. They're working on an update right now. It kind of works, but not really. Uh, Camtasia Studio is, is not, um, uh, M1 compatible yet. They're working on an update now. Um, I was not able to, oh no, that's not true. I did download the M1 compatible beta, or I'm sorry, the M1 native beta for Photoshop and, um, I think it was only Photoshop. I am using the Intel versions of Photoshop and, um, Illustrator is the other one that I, I, and again, when I say I use them, I'm so pedestrian on both. It's really just a tweak. Um, I did find there was a, um, um, a really great, uh, suite of graphics tools. And I'm, and I'm trying to remember what the, the name of the, the suite is that was built from the ground up M1 native that was on sale. And I ended up, I think it was like $24.95 a piece. I think it was called Affinity was the name of the suite. Um, I noticed that my old purchased Pixelmator is now known as Pixelmator Classic, and they recommend that you buy a new one. So I was looking for alternatives and downloaded the Affinity, Affinity suite, which seems pretty solid uh, for uh, Mac-based pieces. But otherwise, it's, it's pretty solid. And uh, everything works. There's some things that are a little wonky, but I'm sure it will get better. So a couple of other Apple pieces of news. I did put in an interesting PC Magazine article calling Living with the MacBook Air, uh, the M1 MacBook Air that talks about, you know, the differences of uh, this and, and older Macs. It's generally complimentary if you're looking for some folks that are uh, uh, kind of living the M1 life. If you want to find out if they should go in this direction. Um, I do want to note some other interesting articles, however. Uh, first, there is a lot of rumors going around that the, the iPhone is going to drop the lightning port. And there's two options here, really. There is some folks that say that they will drop the lightning port for USB-C, which they've already done on a couple of the higher end iPads. Uh, USB-C is becoming the kind of universal, uh, 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 Power interface. We've talked in the past that it, it's not quite the panacea it could be because of all the different versions of USB-C and sometimes the wires do things they, they, they shouldn't be able to do or they're not set up to do or they don't meet the specs. So there's, there's challenges there. 
Um, the other route is they could go to uh, kind of what they're calling MagSafe, right? The iPhone 12 has a MagSafe charger that is a large plastic disc that that it, the uh, iPhone sits on top of that it snaps to it with a magnet. And so they would have no physical ports on the phone at all. So they've previously got rid of the, the micro or I'm sorry, the, head, the headphone jack, and now would be getting rid of the power port. But uh, ZDNet makes a really interesting argument on January 22nd that Apple is probably hesitant to do that either direction, either the wireless direction or the USB-C direction, because it would create, in their words, an unprecedented amount of electronic waste, because there are literally tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of devices that plug in with a lightning port, everything from blood pressure cuffs to speakers, right, that would immediately be, at, at the very least, complicated to hook up to a USB-C device, uh, and, 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 or if not impossible, in the case of a MagSafe device. So I guess it begs, as an Apple family, Wes, how many devices do you have in your house that are lightning-connected? <clears throat> I mean, everyone's got their phone, and, you know... Three of us have iPads, I guess. So, um, you know, there's a there's seven or eight devices. My iPad that I use now for school is the iPad Pro with the USB-C connector, which on the one level is handy because I've been using the MacBook Pro with the USB-C. And so my iPad charges with it. But it, it's challenging at school, you know, because if I do find myself, oh, man, I got a charge and I'm away from my you know, backpack or office or whatever, uh, we're still on, um, you know, all lightning connections for iPads. Basically, I think I might have the only iPad at school that is USB-C. And until very recently, every laptop did not have a USB-C charger. It was using something older. So um, the, the other thing I'd point out about that article is ZDNet is not coming up with that language. That was Apple's state yeah. in yep. pushing back against, I think, a European commission that was yep. trying to push for that. So, you know, we are going to have standards change and USB-C has phenomenal transfer capability and it has, you know, it, it has some interoperability uh, features that, you know, as you mentioned, you've, you've covered and talked about because they're not all not all created equal. But, um, hey, adapters are hard. I had a teacher come into my room today who's got one of these, you know, portable uh, charging um microphone and speakers that that and I have one too but you know we're figuring out okay that's micro USB and so that's what you need to you know go and get but there's been a little bit more standardization I would say in the in the Android world right around the the micro USB standard and I don't know how much the charging power and that kind of thing you know has has played a role but uh, I would just say this is this is coming I mean we're not we're not going to have lightning ports forever. You know, yeah. Apple has gone through multiple iterations of FireWire, you know, FireWire 400, FireWire 800, and, you know, going through these different iterations. What is important to, to keep in mind, and I need to think about this too, is that when you have older devices, and I'm not saying your zip drive, right, because that's been, you know, unusable for a long time probably, but um, even with these these drives, if they don't have, let's say, a USB-A uh, connection. I've, you know, it, it presents challenges. I have a security key that is a USB-C security key 
Uh, and so that is, you know, absolutely fine on my laptop. It's actually fine on my iPad, but my phone, you know, is still lightning. So we're going to be caught in this situation for a while. And at some point we are going to have to deal with that e-waste issue. So I, I, I personally would love to see Apple though, come back with the MagSafe adapters or, uh, you know, power chargers. And those are the ones that have the, the magnets and, it just happened the other day where one of our dogs was walking by, you know, I was like, ah, don't pull my laptop off. My, one of my first teaching jobs at Wayland Baptist University. And I say teaching jobs. This was a higher education adjunct teaching when I was in the you know elementary classroom in Lubbock, Texas. Oh, my gosh. It was before MagSafe. And I, I think it wasn't a student. It was me, you know, and I just tripped over my own power cord and down goes the laptop. So anyway, there's a whole lot of sides to that. And. The the fact is, technologies are going to march ahead, and maybe we're going to have it delayed because of all that e-waste, but at some point, it's going to go the way of the dodo. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I will also note that, uh, you know, every charger for every laptop before USB-C was usually proprietary, or USB-C was proprietary to that laptop. Sometimes they could work with other models from that firm, but that is just a, an unfortunate natural consequence, I think, of of the e-waste problem that, I mean, I, I, I agree with Apple that it, it's going to be challenging to get rid of the lightning connector uh, for that reason, but at some point they're going to, so. Yeah. Okay, well, we are near the top of the hour. Uh, Dr. Fryer, uh, what do you have for your Geek of the Week this week? So I just have one, and it's actually a video that's like six years old, but it is super cool. And I just found it doing some research uh, this week. And uh, a related, I guess I should put this article in too. Maybe we talked about it on the show, but back in October, um, both a French and a U.S., uh, fem- female researchers co, uh, they shared the first, uh, Nobel Prize to be, to be won by two women. And it was for the discovery or invention of CRISPR, which is that gene editing technology. And so my geek of the week is a video that was created by the McGovern Institute at MIT back in November of 2014. I better be careful because it's going to start playing here. Um, and it is just a pretty amazing visualization of how CRISPR works. And I shared it actually with my students today, uh, I guess my fifth graders as one of our wonder links. And we talked about how it's a little scary, but it's, it is a visible example of how, you know, we really need to, to have some good conversations about ethics and how we deploy these technologies because the ability to hum, to, uh, to actually edit what some people would call, I mean, the, there's uh the book by, um, uh, well, it's called the language of God, but DNA is the code, the literal code that tells every living organism, you know, tell, tells the cells how they build that living organisms. And, so, and CRISPR is, is really incredible. So a great video and hopefully not something that's going to scare you, but it is something that is pretty incredible to think that this, you know, the things Isaac Asimov or, um, Jules Verne or, you know, different science fiction authors dreamed about years ago uh, is happening now. And by the way, the vaccine doesn't alter your DNA. And that was something we have talked a little bit about, too. That's a conspiracy theory, anti-vaccination, you know, rumor that's being passed along. <clears throat> that messenger RNA that it puts into your body gives instructions to your cells of how to produce these antibodies, but it does not actually change your DNA code. CRISPR, on the other hand, is a technology that can do that. Hence, editing that kind of code can have literal, you know, generational effects because 
those kinds of changes can be permanent and they can be inherited and passed on. Absolutely. And I have two quick things to share this week. First, this is a, a kind of a reminder of a past uh, Geek of the Week I've shared, but there's a great article in New York Magazine on January 22nd that named my workbench that I bought for my standing desk in my home office as the best standing desk. And I was like, it's nice to get affirmed from a fellow geek on the internet. And you may remember back that I had purchased a, uh, a state, or I'm sorry, a workbench, a Husky adjustable workbench from Home Depot as my standing desk. And I absolutely instill a stable and I love it. It's been a really great addition to my home office. And these start at 179. I would ask you to compare that to any standing desk. Um, available uh, on the internet, and it's likely this is going to be as good or better uh, than any of those. And last Thursday, NCCE, the Northwest Council for Computer Education 2021 conference is March 17th to 20th. It is online this year, and then come hang out with us next year in Seattle, Washington. It is just $49, I'm sorry, just $50 right now in celebration of NCCE's 50th anniversary. And uh, that price will be jumped to $79 as soon as the first 500 uh, uh, people register for the conference. And so go to, go to ncc.org slash conference 2021, where you can pick up a discounted thing now. You can either come live or the, the videos will be available after the conference is over with. I will have at least six presentations there, um, a couple of new ones that I'm releasing. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to participate in that conference this year. Again, ncce.org slash conference 2021. And Peggy George has shared a pretty good Geek of the Week here, too. Um, she recently watched the Netflix show Human Nature by Dan Rather and others and says it was incredible. Um, here's the link to it. It's at thiswondercollaborative.org. I will include that in our show notes, and that is on Netflix, and it is all about CRISPR. So um, I think an example of a technology that has a lot of impact and potential impact in our society, and it's good to find ways to talk about that and discuss it and not to fear the future, but to talk about how we are going to manage this and, you know, hopefully use this for good and not for evil. Well, Wes, where can people find you? I think I'm actually, I've somehow taken over the host role. I'm not That's quite okay. sure why. <laughs> go, go ahead, Dr. Neifer. Where can we find you? <laughs> it's fine. Hey, he's the bull by the horns. I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, and I guess I've already mentioned Northwest Council for Computer Education, www.ncce.org. And you, kind sir. I am W. Fryer on Twitter, probably posting more on our family food and recipe website, which you can find at food.westfryer.com. But I am also periodically blogging, but, uh, you know, frequently getting my digital curriculum and media literacy curriculum updated at mdtech.cassie.org. But you can find all of those links that you can simply click if you will go to edtechsr.com. And you will visit our show notes for today's episode, which is episode 206. We are here on Wednesday nights, generally at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. Uh, we are th thrilled to have Peggy George back with us in our chat room. Would love for you to come join us as well. And if you have any questions or, or things that you want to 
just ask. You want to let us know you're listening to the show. We'd love to hear that. Uh, podcasts are interesting, and I think it's good that we don't, you know, we're not we're not all paying for them, and, and Spotify or Apple doesn't control it all. Uh, there's interesting things, of course, happening with respect to that, but we release that into the wild and don't really sometimes know unless someone happens to visit live or tweet at us. So you can tweet Jason or I. You can find our contact information. You can download small uh, 32 kilobit MP3 only audio versions as well as smaller video versions if you happen to want to subscribe or just find us on YouTube and you can subscribe to us there. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and tell your friends about us here at the EdTech Situation Room. We look forward to our conversations as they continue into 2021. Good night.